For those of you who don't know, Barrett is my middle name. My full name is William Barrett Kaufman. Now, William is a great name, but I've always been glad that my parents decided to call me by my middle name, Barrett. It's been a very unique name. Um, In all my grade school and college years, I don't remember there ever being another person in any of my classes with the name Barrett. However, there has been a groundswell of Barretts in the last couple of years. I don't know if you've noticed. Some of you uh, know Clay and Ellen Waller, and they named one of their boys Barrett. Then there's a mom with her three little ones who come into Trader Joe's every Sunday afternoon, and her middle child is named Barrett. And then just the other day, there was a woman who came through my line, and she was without her kids, but she's from Richmond, and she saw my name tag, and she told me that she has a three-year-old boy named Barrett, another one. And they're all about the same age. I'm not exactly sure what's going on. But because there are so few of us, uh, I'm always interested in learning why someone names their child Barrett. And so I always ask. Believe it or not, uh, I was named after a preacher. It's true. Uh, He was my dad's mentor. His name was Batsel Barrett Baxter. That's where my, that's where my name came from. Um, well, this mom from Richmond who came through my line, her husband's a police officer. I asked her, and they actually chose to name their son, get this, after her husband's favorite gun. It's called the Barrett 50 Cal. That was a new one for me. And I found that humorous. Here I'm named after a preacher with the first name Batzel. And this young boy was named after a rifle that can penetrate armor and take down helicopters. <laughs> anyway, uh, one of my fellow crew members overheard the conversation, uh, and now that's all he calls me is Barrett 50 Cal. That's my new nickname <laughs> at work, Barrett 50 Cal. I actually kind of like it. It kind of has a powerful ring to it. And I share all that with you because the title of my lesson today, or the subject of my lesson today, is the power of a name. You may or may not have picked up on it, as Gregory read earlier, but our text today is about the power of a name. Now, to fully understand the context of Acts chapter 4, we have to go back to 1 Kings chapter 8. So about a 1,000 years earlier, when King Solomon dedicated the temple to the Lord. In 1 Kings chapter 8, the temple has been built, the ark is brought into the temple, the glory of the Lord fills the temple. Solomon says uh, in verse 12 of chapter 8, the Lord has said that he would dwell here. I have indeed built a magnificent temple for you, a place for you to dwell forever. And then Solomon offers a public blessing and a prayer of dedication. And as I read this, as I read from this, I want you to pay attention 
to his emphasis on the name of the Lord. I'm going to pick up in verse 17. Solomon blesses the temple by saying, my father David had in it his heart to build a temple for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. But the Lord said to my father David, because it was in your heart to build a temple for my name, you did well to have this in your heart. Nevertheless, you are not the one to build the temple, but your son, who is your own flesh and blood, he is the one who will build the temple for my name. The Lord has kept the promise he made. I have succeeded, David, my father, and now I sit on the throne of Israel, just as the Lord promised, and I have built the temple for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. And then as he prays this beautiful prayer of dedication, I want to just share this part from verse 29. He says, may your eyes be open toward this temple night and day, this place of which you said, my name shall be there so that you will hear the prayer your servant prays toward this place. And here's what I want you to know. For Solomon, when he talks about the name of the Lord, he's meaning more than just a designation. He's meaning more than just a title. When he talks about the name of the Lord, he's referring to the presence and the power of God. So God promised that in a very real way, His presence and his power would be there at the temple. God's name is synonymous with his presence. God's name is synonymous with his power. That's something that's very important to understand uh, as we get into uh, our narrative today here in Acts chapter 4. Because there is a significant transition occurring in Acts chapter 4. There's a shift that's happening The name of the Lord has been removed from a building and has been given to a man. The name of the Lord is Jesus Christ of Nazareth. The presence and power of God has left the building and now resides in the person of Jesus Christ. And so let's look at this text together that Gregory read to us earlier. It opens here in verse 1 with the leaders of the temple coming out to Peter and John. Now, it's very significant that it was these three groups of leaders that were so upset with Peter and John. It was the temple priests, so it was the current temple priests of the time. It was the captain of the temple guard who was just kind of like the chief of police for the temple. And then it was the Sadducees, and they were sad, you see, because they didn't believe in the resurrection. But, that's true, but they were also a wealthy class of priestly families who had collaborated with Rome in order to bring political power to the temple. And so, these were the leaders in charge of keeping order to the temple, These are the ones who would have been greatly concerned about any unusual happenings there at the temple. And it says in verse 2 that they were greatly disturbed. Literally, that word is very, the verb is very strong. It means to be completely exasperated. And the primary reason for this is that these leaders of the temple thought 
that when they had killed Jesus, that they had put an end to this little group of followers. They had gone to the source. They went after the leader, and they killed him. And they thought that would take care of it. But as Luke has uh, pointed out to us, as we have followed along the narrative here in Acts, this little group of followers is not so little anymore. This group that started out as 12 has gone to 120, and then to 3,000. And then here we read in verse 4 that it's grown to 5,000, and that's just the men. You count the women and children, that number is probably actual double to that. And so this is becoming a problem. And it's late in the day, and so the majority of these rulers and these elders and these teachers had already gone home. And so the sense here is that the few who were still around just quickly run out into the courtyard, into the midst of the mob, and they literally grab Peter and John and physically remove them from the scene and put them in jail. And they wait for the next day. And the next day, the big guns show up. Luke is, Luke is name-dropping for us here. He shares in verse 6 that there's Annas and Caiaphas. There's John and Alexander. These are the big, powerful names in Israel. They're all here. In fact, they had been there the night Jesus was crucified, and now they've returned to put a stop to Jesus' followers. And here's what they want to know. Here's what they're trying to get at. This is the crux of the matter for them in verse 7. They ask this question to Peter and John. By what power or by what name, do you see those two things are synonymous? By what power or by what name did you do this? You see, they were the leaders of the temple. They saw themselves as the power brokers of God, and they had not authorized it. And so who did? And filled with the Holy Spirit, verse 8, Peter answers the leaders in verse 10 with this statement, and notice his emphasis. I want you to notice his emphasis on the name of Jesus. He says, know this, you and all the people of Israel, it's by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. He's the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. So in verse 10, Peter says, it's by the name of Jesus Christ that the lame man is healed. And in verse 12, Peter says, it's by the name of Jesus Christ by which all people must be saved. The leaders wanted to know by what power or by what name did you do this? And Peter clearly responds, it's by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. It's by his name. It's by his power. 
You see, the temple in Jerusalem was the place where God said, my name will be. The temple in Jerusalem was the place where God said, my power and presence will be there. Not anymore. Not anymore. The power and presence of God is no longer in a building. The power and presence of God is now in a person. The name of the Lord no longer dwells in the temple. The name of the Lord is Jesus Christ of Nazareth. The same group of leaders in Acts chapter 4 had rejected Jesus. They had crucified Jesus. But God had raised him from the dead and chose him to be the cornerstone of a new structure. And it's not another temple. But it's a spirit-filled people who have Jesus as their king. What a scene. I'm telling you, this, it would make for a great movie. Because it's hard to, it's hard to understand this. So let me try to, to put it this way so that you can kind of get the context. This is a gathering of the most powerful people in all of Israel. They're all packed in there. The economic elite, the social elite, the political elite, they're all there in one place. And their status, their authority, their power, all of, the, all of the power that they have, they have because of their connection to the temple. And, and the way that we think this meeting would have been set up is in a semicircle so that these powerful leaders surrounded whomever they were interrogating. The equivalent today would, would be for all of Congress and all of the House and the, the president and his cabinet and all of the governors of the states, and all the CEOs of the top businesses, and all the billionaires just packed into a room. And then in the center of the room, you have two fishermen and this healed lame man. It's an amazing scene. The contrast is shocking. And this fisherman essentially says to the group, to this room full of the most powerful men in the nation, it's over. Jesus will take it from here. Salvation is no longer found in the temple. It's only found in the name of Jesus Christ. Of course, they were completely stunned. And I've always loved the way Luke describes their response in verse 13. It says, when when they saw, when these temple leaders saw the courage of Peter and John and realized 
what they were, that, that they were unschooled, ordinary men. They were astonished, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. Well, they, they, they don't know what to do with these fishermen. So they send them out, and they confer together, again, the most powerful men in all of Israel. They decide in verse 17, in order to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, that they would warn them to no longer speak to anyone in the name of Jesus. Um, as, as you all know, there was a group of us that just went to uh, Croatia, and uh, one of the families that we got to spend quite a bit of time with that I couldn't help but think about uh, as I studied this text this week, one of the families that we spent time with was from Russia. Um, they were a young family. I always kind of called them the Wootens because they were Zach and Caitlin's age, and they had three little ones about the same age as Zach and Caitlin's. Um, and they're just a sweet family, and uh, we got to spend quite a bit of time with them. But the day Russia invaded the Ukraine, the wife decided to go downtown to protest the war. And that was a big mistake. They arrested her, and they let her go, but they warned her to not do it again. Well, she couldn't help it. And so she began a letter-writing campaign. And the government got hold of some of these letters, and they came after them. And it's one of these just kind of incredible stories where they hid out in one of their kids' rooms one evening as, as people banged on the door and flashlights flashing in through the windows. And when these people left, they took that opportunity to, to, to flee. And they fled the country and were able to get across the border. And they're now living in Croatia. I thought of them this week as I read about these leaders trying to keep Peter and John from speaking about Jesus. They conferred together and they, they said, we must warn them to speak no longer to anyone in this name. So in verse 18, then the temple leaders called them in again. And stronger than a warning, they commanded them. With all the power and authority they had, they commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But I love this response. Peter and John reply in verse 19. Judge for yourselves whether it's right in God's sight to obey you rather than God. In verse 20, they respond. This is literally a double negative that they respond with. So it reads, for we cannot not speak about what we've seen and heard. But we cannot not speak about what we've seen and heard. And so after further threatening them, they let him go because they could not decide how to punish them. What a great story. What a great narrative. Um, and my, my takeaway for us today from this is rather simple. Um, but 
here's what I want to leave you with um, from this interaction because I think it's very important. It's one sentence that I'm going to break down into two parts, but here it is. Peter and John are ordinary men who cannot not speak about the name of Jesus Christ. As I've thought about it this week, what a great definition of a disciple. Ordinary people who cannot not speak about the name of Jesus. Peter and John are ordinary men. I I think part of the reason these temple leaders let them go initially is that because they saw them as unschooled and ordinary men. They didn't feel like they were really a threat. After all, they didn't have all the letters and the initials to the right of their names. They were not wealthy. They had no political power. They had no social clout. In other words, they were ordinary. And this is very important. I want you to hear this. Jesus chooses the ordinary to be part of his kingdom. That's who he chooses. I mention this because I think it's primary to understanding this new work of God to which Jesus Christ is the cornerstone. The rejects become the chosen. The rejected stone becomes the chosen cornerstone. That's how the kingdom begins. Paul describes it this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 27. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak and the powerless things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things of this world and the rejected things of this world and the things that are not to nullify the things that are. And I share that with you today because maybe you're sitting in this room today and you think that there's no way that God would ever choose you to do anything of significance for him. That you are just too ordinary. Guess what? You're exactly who Jesus is looking for. Peter and John, ordinary men who cannot not speak about the name of Jesus Christ. 
Verse 13 says, when they saw the courage of Peter and John, they were astonished. Because just weeks before, when this same group of leaders had arrested Jesus, Peter and John fled for their lives. In fact, Peter had even denied ever knowing Jesus Christ. But now, filled with the Holy Spirit, they stand before all of them, speaking the name of Jesus with great courage and boldness. You know, what's so interesting about this narrative is that the temple leaders are doing everything they can do to keep them from speaking in his name, yet Peter and John cannot help but say his name. It's like the harder they try to stop them, the more they keep doing it. And just like these temple leaders who warned them to no longer speak to anyone in his name and command them to not speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. I think, I know that there are rulers and authorities and powers at work in our world today whether spiritual or societal, who do not want us to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. They want us to be quiet. They want us to talk about church. They want us to speak about faith. but they don't want us to proclaim the name of Jesus. And I am convicted more than ever to intentionally and purposefully speak the name of Jesus Christ. I want to be like Peter and John who cannot not speak about the name of Jesus. Listen, I want to encourage you to speak the name of Jesus today. Do not hold back. Perhaps you have felt that weight. Perhaps you have felt those powers. Perhaps you have felt those forces. They want to keep the name of Jesus from being proclaimed in our world. The one who this world was was created through and for. Don't hold back. Speak the name of Jesus today. The name of Jesus is not just a tagline at the end of our prayers. There is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. All who call on the name of Jesus will be saved. There is power in his name. When we proclaim the name of Jesus, we proclaim the power and
and presence of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this simple reminder to us. I, I just am so thankful for your word, um, and it's living, and it's active, it's teaching us, and I'm thankful for this, just this simple example today of these ordinary men who could not not speak about the name of Jesus Christ. And so I pray, Father, that we uh, will follow in their steps. I pray that you will use us, power us, to proclaim the name of Jesus into a world that needs to hear his name. I pray this in his precious name. Amen. This morning, we're going to have an invitation. Uh, and it's really, just, uh, it's really just the invitation that uh, Peter gives at Pentecost. Um, and perhaps uh, with a little different emphasis than maybe how it's been emphasized for you before. But Peter's invitation at Pentecost is to repent and be baptized into the name of Jesus Christ. You see, there's no other name. There's no other name to be connected to. There's no other name to to put your faith in. There's no other name to put your hope in. That's the only name. So we repent, be baptized into the name of Jesus Christ. He's the only one who has the power to forgive and the power to overcome death. And so this morning, that's the invitation to you. You're here today and you want to repent of your sins and come and be baptized into the name of Jesus. The invitation is offered to you today. Let's stand together and sing.